Father's Day again. Uh, Grace is kind of unique. It has a, a higher ratio of men than most other churches, which, which is very cool. And uh, not that there's anything against women. I'm not saying that. But, uh, you know, hey, dads, we know God's called us as believers to initiate, pursue, protect, provide, and lead with self-sacrificial love. That's what we're to do. So keep that in mind. That's not what we're talking about today, but hey, you, you know that, right? All right, so a couple things. Mike has been talking about the, uh, the LifeWise and just, uh, just my experiences. I, I just popped into a school board meeting, which I, I normally never do, and I was there late, and I found out that there is a small but very vocal opposition against uh, LifeWise, so we would appreciate to get you, if you're supportive of it, uh, to put that, sign your name up somewhere. And then if you want to know more, we're hosting a community uh, LifeWise kind of engagement for people who are supportive of a squad, as he said, Thursday, 7 o'clock. And have you seen, if you haven't seen the update in the gym, it is taking shape. Do we have a picture? It's coming together. It, it's looking impressive. Hey, you guys don't sound all that excited. Your kids are excited about this. Let me just tell you, I was over there. They're walking in going, whoa, it's a pirate ship. Yeah, so anyway, yeah, cool stuff. But today, we are in Ezekiel, and we're going to wrap up Ezekiel. We start a new series next Sunday, so you want to be there for that. And again, I'll try to set the context as I like to do quickly. And uh, as we know, God created as people began to multiply in the world. The problem all through history is people drift from God, and they do things that God says they shouldn't do. And in that kind of an environment, God called one man named Abram, later to be called Abraham, and he lived around here, and God called him into this new land, and that's what he did. He traveled, he came up through here, and then he dropped down into this area. Canaan is what it was called at that time. And then while they were there, here's what uh, Genesis 15:18 says, "On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, "To your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates." So and that's basically well, it looks like this, um, this, this white that's shaded here, that's basically the promise. The, the, some of these borders aren't exact, but the river Euphrates all the way to the Euphrates. And that's what God promised the descendants of Abraham. And so as we continue on in history, we know that Abraham, and basically he was childless at this time. He, didn't, he was past child. He was an, older, an old man, and he, he had Isaac, and then Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel, and they all lived in this land, Canaan, and then it turned out that one of the sons ended up in Egypt, and then the whole family ended up in Egypt, and, and they were, there were about 75 plus about that time. They, there was a famine. They moved to Egypt and were protected, but a couple of generations later, these people became enslaved by the Egyptians for 400, actually 430 years, they were slaves in Egypt, but during that time, they grew into a great nation. They, they started crying out to God. God raised up a man named Moses, and Moses came 
and he confronted Pharaoh and ended up delivering the people. So, so they leave, uh, leave Egypt, and then they, they go into the wilderness. They're afraid to go into Israel, and because of that, God punishes that generation by allowing them, okay, you don't want to go in, then we'll just wander around here in the wilderness for 40 years. After that, they, after they're, they're wandering around here, they end up here, and they go into the promised land to conquer the promised land. And God did that in part to provide a land, but he was also judging the Canaanite nations in that area for the false religion they were doing as they were sacrificing their children to false gods and doing all this stuff. So they went in to the land, and they had divided it up between the 12 tribes. But what happened is they, they never actually conquered all the land. They divided all the land. They had it in their mind, and they, they found room for everybody in the land, but they didn't actually conquer the whole land. This, this other shaded area is about the land that they conquered or they were in control of after this. And, of course, what started happening is these people, God's people, they would drift from God and they would start worshiping the gods of the Canaanite nations around them. And as they did that, then God would stop protecting them. And then these nations would overtake them. And then, then Israel would get a little smaller. And then as the, things got really bad, they had, cry, they had realized this is God's judgment on us because we've neglected him. We've turned away from him. So they would cry out to God. There would be a revival. God would raise up a leader. Those leaders were called judges. We can read about them in the book of right? And so raise them up, and then they would be delivered, and the, the country would get a little bigger, but that just happening, seesawing back and forth, back and forth. And then the people said, we want a king like other nations. They started off with Saul. Saul did not fully follow God and was kind of a train wreck as a king. God removed him, and then David became king. David was Israel's strongest king, and David expanded the empire of Israel wider than, than it's ever been, and so he conquered about this much. So that shaded yellow, that's about the height of David's uh, area that he controlled, that Israel controlled at the time. When David died, Solomon, his son, took over. Solomon built the temple, which was a big deal, because before that, since the law, they had been worshiping God with, with a tabernacle, kind of a movable tent thing, but now there's the temple that God allowed them to build. And so that happens. But after Solomon dies, the kingdom splits into the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was made up of ten tribes, and they, all had, they had all evil kings. And then there was the southern kingdom that was primarily the tribe of Judah, and they had good and bad kings. And so people keep drifting for God. After about 200 years of rebellion, God allows a new country that came from up here called Assyria, a new world power. They came in and they pretty much just wiped out the northern kingdom. So the northern kingdom ceased to exist and the northern kingdom Jewish people were scattered all over. They deported them, scattered them, they're gone. About 135 or so years after that, an even newer world power comes onto the scene, and that's, uh, I got a new toy. Did you notice that? I got a new toy. So happy Father's Day to me. No, actually, we've had this for a while. But Babylon comes in. They, 
they, are, they defeat Assyria, and they start taking over all this, and then they eventually come and take over the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, the prophets, Jeremiah, predicted, hey, there's no use resisting Babylon. This is God's judgment on us because we keep drifting from God, and so that happened. Ezekiel, who we've been studying, he lived all through that time. Babylon first came in at... Uh, at uh, 605, 605 years before Christ. That's when they first came. That's when Daniel, a different prophet, was taken back to Babylon. They came back eight years later in 9597. Eh, almost got that. 597 years before Christ, they came back. And that's when they took Ezekiel. And then 11 years after that, 586 BC before Jesus. That's when the third time Babylon comes in with Nebuchadnezzar and they not only defeat Israel that time, they also then destroyed the temple. And we talked about that last time. Uh, King Zedekiah was the last guy ruling it. And then at that point, Israel ceases to be a nation, Israel or Judah. So that's kind of what's happening there. Now, Babylon has fallen and the temple has been destroyed, you know, right here. But Ezekiel is over here with the other exiles. And Ezekiel has told them this is going to happen. And then Ezekiel finds out from God it's happening. And then Ezekiel has, God gives him another vision. And, it's, and, and this vision is getting the people ready for the news that's coming from what used to be Judah that not only has Jerusalem fallen, but the temple has been destroyed. So Ezekiel knows it, but the exiles don't know this. And right before they're going to get news about that, God gives Ezekiel a vision to encourage the exile, exiled Jewish people because when they hear that the temple is destroyed, the temple that stood since the days of Solomon, for 400 years the temple has been there, and that's been the pride of the Jewish people when they followed God, but it was also the pride of the Jewish people when they didn't follow God. They still sometimes used the temple to follow other gods, but it was still, that was national pride of them, that that's going to be a wipe. That was the glue that hold them together to them. No country's one thing, no temple, that's a whole nother thing. Right before they hear about this, as news is on the way, but they don't know yet, God gives Ezekiel a vision, and it's really a promise of hope for Israel. And what he's saying is, hope's coming, I'm not done with Israel yet, There'll be a time in the future where Israel will be regathered. And so he, he says all that. And actually, some of that comes true in a few years after that. But for 2,500 years, it did not come true until the lifetime of some of the people that are sitting in this room, it came true, and then it'll be fully fulfilled in a, at a time that's still yet future. That's what I want to kind of walk you through. So God promised to resurrect Israel as a nation. He promised that his people would have this land forever, that it, it was, it's God's land, and he says it's going to be the Jewish people's land, but now they're gone. And so there's going to be a time where God will no longer allow the other nations to claim control over Israel. It's, he's bringing hope.
God not only said that this land would go to his, that Abraham's descendants, but God also further said, I will bless the nations who bless Israel, and I will curse the nations that curse Israel. And through Moses, he told them, you know, this land is yours forever, but if you rebel against me and worship other gods, I will scatter you. And that's exactly what happened, but there's still hope. And God promised through Ezekiel right before they hear that the temple's destroyed that God will resurrect in some future day the nation of Israel. And we don't think a lot about that, but as we're going to find out in this message, what other nation has come back, has survived as a distinctive race after these things, after 430 years of slavery, after two total destructions, after several deportations, after 2,000 years of being scattered, plus a holocaust, plus losing any common language because all their people are in all these other countries where they speak whatever, whatever language of the country they're in. Here's what he says, Ezekiel 36, 24. God's saying, For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. God's telling Ezekiel, tell the exiles this, hope is on its way, even though you're going to hear this bad news. And God keeps his promises. So what happened next in history is right now the exiles are in Babylon. Another prophet, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel all overlapped with their lives. Jeremiah, the older one of, of the group, he said, hey, we're going into exile. Babylon's going to conquer us. This is God's plan because he's judging us for our sin, but it's only going to last 70 years. After the 70 years, then people were allowed to return to the land. But the problem was not all the people in Babylon even went back because there's nothing left in Israel. It's totally destroyed. There's no temple. There's no nothing. By then, they had kind of built lives for themselves in Babylon. Not all the people wanted to return. And, and a lot of times, I know this is weird in the Bible, because we talk about this, we talk about this Babylonian, Babylonian exile, and this Babylonian time, and who cares? I mean, what's the point? Why do we keep mentioning that? The Bible doesn't say all that much about that. Why is that such a reference point? Well, it's a reference point because in 586, when Jerusalem fell for the last time and the temple was destroyed, from that moment until modern times, Israel never had their own government. Israel never controlled the land that they lived on, although they were scattered all over the place. Israel never had a common language for all its people. But here in the lifetime of some of the people sitting with us, God kept that promise with the modern nation of Israel. Think about it. Even the language Jewish people are everywhere, all over the map. They're in Russia, they're in Germany, they're in England, they're in South America, they're in the United States. They're all over, they're in Iraq, they're all over the world. But they all speak the language of whatever nation that they're in. A lot of them are still studying Hebrew in order to study the Bible, but they don't use that as a combination. They don't speak Hebrew. So they don't even have that going for them. Well, so after the 70 years, what happened? Well, actually, Daniel, a prophet living during Ezekiel's time, 
predicts what's going to happen. First, Babylon's going to take over, and he's saying this during Babylon, so that was an easy one. But then he's saying, but not only that, then it'll be Persia, and then it will be Greece, and then it will be Rome. And then all those empires did take over the country, the, the area that we call Israel. All these world powers, Daniel prophesied those powers, that, it was, that that's going to happen in the future, and it did. Rome was still in power when Jesus ministered on earth, right? 500 years later, here, here's Jesus. Rome really controls. They're kind of a country, but they can't do anything. I mean, they're not the government. It's just whatever Rome allows them to do. And, and think about this. What language did Jesus speak? Jesus actually spoke Aramaic. You know where Aramaic came from? Aramaic came from up here, the Assyrians. That was still held over all those centuries later. Most people spoke Aramaic. But then some people mostly wrote in Greek. That's why the New Testament is written in Greek during the time of Jesus. But people knew Hebrew to study the Bible, but they didn't speak it. So all this is happening. So after, after Rome, Rome falls, and then uh, he's there, Jesus is there, and then the area is controlled by different empires. Down through history, it's the, the Byzantine Empire controls this area, then the Ottomans controlled it, but then they're challenged by the Arabs, and then eventually by the Arabs and Muslims, and so they and the Ottomans are fighting back and forth, but then Ottomans sort of keep control until World War I happens. In World War I, the Ottoman Empire sides with Germany, and then they're defeated. But during the war in 1917, the British government sees kind of what's happening, and they, they draft up the Balfour Declaration. And what that says in 1917, the British government says, we recognize that these Jewish people that are scattered in every country on earth, that they need a national homeland in Palestine, and we're supportive of that. 1917. In the meantime, World War I rages, Germany loses, France and Britain mostly divide up the land, and Britain now ends up in charge of the land that we call, or they called at that time, Palestine. And that leads us up to World War II. And so World War II happens. Britain's got that. After that, and during that war, six million Jewish people living in Germany and around Germany were killed in something called the Holocaust. Right. That creates more world sympathy when World War II is over Britain wants to honor its commitment, and I'll try to, try to tighten up here to this area. Britain wants to honor its commitment, and so Britain proposes that all this area, Palestine, be all given to the Jewish people. And it's all this. It's this. It's Jordan, what we call Jordan, you know, whole nine yards. But people don't like it, and mainly who doesn't like it, who are objecting to, to Britain is the King Hussein family, which is actually a dynasty that's ruled in Jordan and still rules today. And so they say, no way, you can't give all this land to the Jewish people, and they make a big stink about it. 
And so then Britain says, okay, everything east of the Jordan River, this Jordan Valley, is going to go to a new country called Transjordan. That just means other side of the Jordan. And then this becomes the country of Jordan. And then there's just this much left. And Britain says, hey, we want to give this, what's left, now to Israel, which is not half of the size. But then again, there are more Palestinian Arabs and different people in several countries saying, no, don't do it. We don't want a Jewish nation here. And so the British people don't want to do, but they wanted to honor the Balfour Declaration. So finally what they do is they come up with a plan to divide the land. How many have heard this term, the partition plan? Anybody hear that? They come up Apparently not. Let me tell you. They come up with the partition plan, and the partition plan is England's uh, attempt at dividing up what land is left between Arab people and Jewish people, and that looks like this. Okay, so they take Israel, and then the white, and there's not a lot going down here, I could just tell you that. They take the white, and they, they say, okay, this will be the Jewish people's land, and then the orange, this will be the Arab people's land, and, and notice the Jewish people claim Jerusalem as their capital, and there's a small Jewish quarter in existence, so they say, yeah, they can have that Jewish quarter in Jerusalem, but they're cut off on every side from the rest of their people, and so that all happens. Now, here's the problem. When they come up with this partition plan, the Arab people say, no way. And the UN that's involved now, and Britain's like, well, why? This is fair. This is equal. And they're like, and they kind of did it by population and, you know, where they lived and stuff. And they say, no way. Well, why no way? Because two weeks after Britain pulls out, we are going to slaughter these Jewish people and we are going to drive them into the sea and there won't be any of them left. And so for the next 20 years, there are four major wars between Arab people and Jewish people. And it starts with the War of Independence, and that actually started fighting in 1947, even before they declared themselves a nation. But the day before Britain pulls out, after turning over most of their military installations to the Arab people, the day before they pulled out, David Ben-Gurion for Israel stands up, gets on the radio and announces that he's proclaiming a new Jewish country called Israel, which will live in the allotted portions that they were given by Britain and the UN. And a country is born. And in one day, after 2,500 years, for the first time since the fall in Babylon and the deportation there, for the first time, Israel has a country they can call their own. 11 minutes after David Ben-Gurion makes that announcement, the first world leader to recognize Israel, because there's a lot of countries that still don't recognize Israel as a country, the first world leader to recognize Israel is our President Truman, 11 minutes later, goes on Nash on the radio that people can pick up all over the world and says, we recognize Israel as a sovereign nation. Of course, that doesn't pacify the Arab people, and then they put their plan into effect to annihilate the Jewish people. 
Now remember, at this time, the Jewish people are still scattered all over the world. There are way more Jewish people in America than they were there. There are only like 64,000 Jewish people in Israel at this time. And there, there weren't that many Arabs either, but all these other nations then attack Israel. And so we have the War of Independence, and that's where Egypt attacks, Syria attacks, Jordan attacks, Iraq attacks Israel. 45 million people those countries represent against 64,000 Jewish people that, that are there. That's a ratio of 700 to 1. Attacking Israel when Israel's only been a nation for a matter of days and weeks. And then the, the final result of this, they declare an armistice in 1949. And when they do that and the dust settles and everybody says, okay, okay, we'll stop. Israel now has gained 23% more land than they had, than they were allotted in the parti partition plan. So now all of a sudden, they cleaned all this up and all in the north, and they broke through to Jerusalem. Think about that. 1948-49, because the few Jews that lived in Jerusalem were not allowed to go to the western wall, and the western wall is basically the retaining wall that Herod put there as he was trying to fix the rebuilt temple that Zerubbabel made when they came back after 70 years. That was never that great. And he expanded the temple mount, built this wall, and, and the temple's all been gone, but there's this wall, and that's the holiest place to the Jewish people. And during the war, when the Jewish soldiers came close, they gathered at that wall celebrating. They finally got to the wall. This is Jerusalem. This is their homeland. This is their capital. By the way, to other countries, Tel Aviv has been the capital. We had a president. President Trump was the first tr president that said, we will move our embassy to Jerusalem. So all this is happening. This is all going down. That's just 1948. They gained 23%. A few years later, 1956, there's the Sinai War, and what's happening there is Egypt, who's backed by Russia, they come in, and they, they threaten, they come in here, and they start staging things for an invasion. They also stopped um, Jewish shipping, any Israel shipping through the Suez Canal, which greatly crippled Israel. So they do that, the, the, the war for Sinai, and... Uh, and then that, after blocking the Suez Canal, as they, as they got all this, Israel actually does a preemptive strike. And after they do that, they take over you know, all of Egypt and the Suez Canal as well. Boom! And then the United States says, hey, give it back. Give it back. Give the canal back. Give the Sinai Peninsula back. And so they do. The next, the next war was in 1967. 1967 was the Six-Day War, if this is telling you anything. The Six-Day War. 
And what happened there is Russia backs uh, Syria, and Russia's behind this, and Egypt, and they go in to attack, and they've given back the Sinai Peninsula, but they go in to attack, and then we also have Jordan troops that are coming in. You know, they're attacked from three sides. Six-day war. In six days, there's a ceasefire, and at that point, Israel has now gained, they gave this back, they gained the Gaza Strip, we still hear that in the news, the West Bank, you know, we still hear that all the time in the news, which was annexed by Jordan about the time of the War of the Independence, so they get that, and then they get the Golan Heights from Syria, they get this from Jordan, that Jordan annexed, they get Gaza from Egypt, they get the Golan Heights from Syria, every single country that attacked them, they took land from them. And they declared a ceasefire to stop the borders where they were. They took the Golan Heights, which is high ground just to the east of the Sea of Galilee, where they had been shelling Israel's um, population since 1948 for 20 years. They've been just bombing Israelis on the other side of the lake. Israel takes that. And, of course, everybody wants, you know, give it back, give it back, give it back. That's kind of what's happening. And, uh, and then in 1973, the fourth war is the Yom Kippur War. Egypt and Syria both unite together to launch a surprise attack. And, uh, and Israel wins decisively. So here we have Israel surrounded by a sea of enemies that wants to destroy it. And that's the way it is to this day. And not only that, Russia and now Iran is saber-rattling toward Israel. And this is, by the way, exactly what Ezekiel told us in the next chapters that we're actually not going to do, which is chapters 38 and 39. But anyway, that's a whole other thing. Now, God not only promised that they would get the land, which happened in 1948, and God has protected them, he keeps his promises, but God also said that land would blossom. I mean, before this time, Israel, most of it's just arid wasteland, uh, he says this in Ezekiel 36, 34, the desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. As a sign, God's saying, this land's gonna blossom. And here's what I'm talking about. Mark Twain, everybody know Mark Twain? You don't really know him, you've just heard, but anyway. Yeah, Mark Twain in 1867, this, you know, Civil War days, traveled over to, to Israel and toured the country. And he's a skeptic, but, you know, he's heard about Israel. I mean, it's all over the Bible, and everybody's talking about it. And, he, and he's just stunned. He goes, this is a deserted wasteland. He describes it as being lifeless, desolate, dismal. How many miles they would travel and never see a human being. But God says it would blossom, and that's what's happening. You go to Israel today, you see that. Right now today, Israel is the number one exporter of fruit to all of Europe. Israel has blossomed. God has resurrected Israel after 2,500 years. But that's not all. God also promised separately to resurrect the nation of Israel spiritually. And so God causes Ezekiel to have another vision. 
Now hang with me, because this is the arm bones connected to the... Okay, are you ready? All right, it goes like this. Ezekiel 37.1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit, the Lord, and set me down in the middle of a valley, saying, I had a vision, and God takes me somewhere and puts me in this valley. And it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass among them, round about. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? It sounds like a rhetorical question. He's transported in a vision to this valley full of bleached out human bones, and he says, can these bones live? You'd think, well, doesn't look like it. But Ezekiel replies, and I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then God asked Ezekiel, to do another strange thing, although now he's not really doing it in real life because it's all in a vision. But it goes this way, verse 4. And he, meaning God, and again he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life and I will put sinews on you and make flesh grow back on you and cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied, there was a noise and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. So all this is a vision. But now God's going to explain the vision to Ezekiel so he can give his fellow exiles hope because that's what this is all about. Verse 14. He said, No, I'm sorry, verse, verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished and we're completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves. My people, I will bring you into the land of Israel. So he's saying national resurrection but also a spiritual resurrection. Look at verse 14. I will put my spirit within you, and you will come to life, and I will place you on your own land. Then will you, you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. Now, some people get this confused with the day of Pentecost, because the day of Pentecost, the spirit came. But the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost as a precursor to the Spirit coming to Gentiles and Jews, whoever would follow God. This is not that. This only concerns the Jewish people, and not only that, all Jewish people will receive the Spirit. And we know by prophecy this actually happens toward the end of the tribulation time preceding the thousand-year reign, the millennial kingdom. Actually, because, and then there's this interim time 
called the time of the Gentiles, and Paul actually talks about this time we're living in in Romans 11, and let me throw that out to you, beginning of verse 25. He says, in the first century, none of this has happened yet, he says, for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. They're not following Christ. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's the church age. That's all of us. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it's written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And again, we think that happens at the end of tribulation. And then God calls Ezekiel to do one more weird thing. All right? Another weird thing. He says, take two sticks in front of everybody. Moore Street Theater. Write on one of the sticks, Judah. Write on the other stick, Ephraim, which is Judah for the southern kingdom. Ephraim was the biggest tribe in the northern kingdom. And then here's what he says. Do this. He says, then join them for yourself to one another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. Of course, when he's doing this, they all know he's a prophet, so they all gather around. What's this mean, Ezekiel? And then God says, and when they ask that, you tell them that when this nation is resurrected from the dead, it will not be two nations, it will be one nation, Israel, and that's what he's saying. And they'll be my people, and I'll be their God. But there's another promise about the resurrected Israel, and that is that the true eternal son of David, will rule. And so uh, Ezekiel 37, 25 through 37, it tells us he's saying, hey, and my son David, and we know when he's saying David rules, some people think that's a resurrected David, but we know, hey, son of David, that's what the people in the first century were calling Jesus. Jesus said he was coming twice. You know, his second coming is two different things. One as a servant to pay the price for our sin. One as king to rule, and that's when that happens. That's what he's telling us. But here's the deal. That's the millennial kingdom, which is still future. Like Israel is resurrected as a nation, God offers us new life through the true king, Jesus Christ. And so I know for some of you, this has been, some of you love this stuff, and some of you are like, oh, not Ezekiel again. Ah, you gotta be kidding me. What is going on? All this is part of God's redemptive plan through history to reach you and me today. God starts out. He, he creates us. He, he allows us to, to know him and have free will, and we all wander, and we, we do that just like Israel kept doing that. That's what we do. We know there's a God we know there's a God. Common sense tells us a God, there's a God. Common sense tells us evolution is not true, which, by the way, is also racist. Common sense tells us that. We can't make life. We can't make one kind of a species turn into a completely different kind of a species. That doesn't happen anywhere. We can't invent. We can't pull DNA, genetic information out of the air. It doesn't make any sense. We know this. We know there's a God as a people. It's only common sense. But we don't want to follow God. We reject God. We do our own thing. We follow our own path. But God's loving us. 
and he's still pursuing us. And he makes a way through this redemptive plan that was promised since the garden that there will be one who will come, Jesus Christ. And he will be God, God-man. And he will voluntarily give up his life as the perfect sacrifice to replace the whole sacrificial system that lasted all through the Old Testament. He'll replace all that one perfect sacrifice. And why do we need a sacrifice? Because God is holy and righteous, and there's a right and a wrong. And as a good judge of the universe, and he is a good and perfect judge, wrong has to be punished. And so Christ takes our punishment, our individual punishment for sin. For my sin, I deserve separation from God forever. But Jesus came and died on the cross in part to pay the penalty for my sin. So that if I come to God on God's terms, which is faith, I can be forgiven forever. So if you kind of got lost in the weeds through Ezekiel, or, or hopefully you're not here for the first time and you're going, what is this church all about? Please come back. <laughs> the point is just this. We have to admit our sin. And then we have to put our faith, our belief. It's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish, not pay the price, but have everlasting life. Admit your sin. Put your belief, your trust in Jesus alone. There's nothing we can do to offset our sin. It's all Jesus. It's all a gift. And then we'll know that's real when it shows up in your life. It's not just a set of words that we say. We have to believe in our heart. And when we do that, it shows up. We have a desire to follow him. It's, it's really not even about a church thing, although church is, is to preach this message. It's one heart before God, admitting our sin, understanding Jesus paid the price for us, and turning to him with belief and a desire to follow him. That's what it means to be saved. Saved from what? Saved from what we deserve, our punishment. And so that's the most important thing. So if you get wiped out and, and you got lost in the shuffle, just go home with that. That's the most important decision that you'll ever make. And you can do that anywhere. You can do that on, on the drive home. You could just spend 15 minutes this afternoon figuring all that out. And if you need help to figure it out, if you have questions, come, get your questions answered. We're right here in room one after the service. Come in during the week. That's what we're here for. And in just a moment, we have our, our music team. They're going to come out. They're going to actually lead us in a song about the bones. Are you ready for this? A song about the bones that we just heard about. Before that happens, let's stand for prayer. Father God, we thank you for your goodness. And Lord, this whole redemptive plan that you have for our salvation woven through the Old Testament and the New Testament, one story about your grace. And God, we thank you for the greatest gift of your son, Jesus. And Lord, as we enjoy that, also recognizing there'll be a day 
when the Jewish people will enjoy it. Because right now, they're most, mostly atheists in Israel. But a day is coming. And God, we thank you for that. And Father, we pray for those who don't know you, have not come to you yet, who are here. They're just like we were. God, draw them. Pursue them. Help them to see and get their questions answered. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.